life in you. Thank you, God. Amen. I don't know if Chip announced it, but Saturday we have our golf tournament uh, over at the golf course for the School of Ministry. And uh, we invite you, if you haven't signed up for that and you'd like to come, we'd love to have you come. I'm getting razzed a little bit. Uh, they say that I stack the deck with the people that uh, I have playing on my team. Let me just assure you that my team has a handicap. That's me. All right? I played yesterday. You've got nothing to worry about. After seeing how I shoot, you've got nothing to worry about. So we'd like you to come and join us uh, for our School of Ministry uh, golf tournament. You can find out information. Would you turn now to Proverbs chapter 31 this morning? We're nearing the end of our study in the book of Proverbs. And this week and next week, which is Mother's Day, we want to conclude with Proverbs 31. The computer age has given us an interesting phenomena known as virtual reality. Virtual reality is something that is artificial reality through high resolution, high technique and graphics. The idea is to create virtual environments to simulate reality so that if you're an astronaut, you can get practice on outer space from a computer. You can go through the docking stations of taking your spacecraft and docking it into space. Uh, you can get on a Grand Prix racetrack and go at breakneck speeds, all without leaving your office. All done with virtual reality. I was in Hawaii a few years ago, and uh, I heard about this video game center, and so I checked it out at night, and they had this gyroscope jet mechanism. You sit in this thing, and they give you the screen and the headset, and it's flying a jet, but if you turn the aircraft, the whole thing swivels upside down. It's this, like a ball bearing sitting in a socket. And the idea is there's two of them, and you have an opponent, and you try to shoot down the aircraft, and you beat the other guy. And so when you turn the thing, turns just like you're in a real spacecraft. It was awesome. I won, by the way. just wanted to share that with you. <laughs> now, as fun as it is, and as advancing as virtual reality is and affords us so much, there is a drawback. The drawback is that we start seeing life in terms of virtual reality. We prefer virtual over real reality. I was sent an article from Australia not too long ago where the journalist expresses his concern with this illustration. He says, as the tools for virtual reality pro proliferate around us, we distance ourselves from real life. In 1990, a reporter for the New York Times, following the famous case of a man accused of murdering his pregnant wife and then blaming the assault on an unknown black assailant, asked a neighbor of the couple for her thoughts on the tragedy. Do you accept his story, she was asked. Does it seem possible to you, knowing this man, that he made up the whole thing? I don't know, the woman replied. I'm dying for the movie to come out so I can see how it ends. The journalist continues. I don't think this woman was joking or being cynical or even being evasive. I think she simply meant what she said. For her, a television movie about the tragedy would tell her more accurately than her own experience what to believe. This episode, sh episode sheds light on an important cultural trend 
our growing separation from reality. More and more of us, whether we like it or not, accept the copy as the original. I shared that as an introductory note into Proverbs 31 because I believe that our culture is producing a whole crop of men who are looking for a virtual woman rather than a virtuous woman. We are victims of Vogue and Cosmopolitan and Hollyweird and all of the images that are proliferated about what the ideal woman ought to be. Now, I've got to believe that Solomon had a little bit of problem with this. After all, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. This guy kept going and going and going to find the perfect gal. So with all of that experience, one would expect that somewhere in Solomon's writings he would speak about women. Well, here in the last chapter we have what is called the chapter of the virtuous woman. Now it says in verse 1, the words of King Lemuel. Now, we don't know who this guy is. There is no record of King Lemuel, but Jewish tradition has this as a pet name for Solomon. And that these are the words of Bathsheba to Solomon. And Solomon writes these words. Now before we get into the chapter, and you're tempted to say, great, another piece of advice by men given to women, or what a woman ought to be like. Before you're tempted to say that, let's finish the first verse. The words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. These are the words of a woman to her son about women. I think it's included for at least two reasons. Number one, so that we can have some kind of a target for women on what women ought to be, godly women. Secondly, for men who are looking for a wife of what to look for in a woman, a virtuous, not a virtual woman. Now let me ask a question. How many at this service are single? Raise up your hand. Raise them up high. Don't be proud. Raise your your hand up high. Okay, keep them up. Keep them up. Now look around quickly. Find out who's single. This morning, what we want to look at, beginning in verse 10, is the designation of this type of a woman, the description of her, and finally her devotion. Verse 10 is her designation. She is virtuous. Who can find a virtuous wife? That is the million-dollar question. For her worth is far above rubies. The uh, American Standard Version calls this gal a worthy woman. The Berkeley version, a wife with strength of character. The New International calls her a wife or a woman of noble character. The Hebrew term chayil speaks of a woman who has an inner strength or a moral strength. It is an excellent woman, a woman of valor. The word speaks of a well-rounded woman in all of the characteristics of her inner life. A well-rounded, excellent woman, or we might translate it today, an awesome gal. Who can find this awesome gal? Her worth is far above rubies. Now, gals, as we work our way through this chapter this week and next week, there is certainly no need to get defensive in this chapter. Because after all, you read this kind of a question, who can find a virtuous woman? 
And you might say, well, wait a minute, who can find a virtuous man? And I would say, amen to that as well. It works both ways. This chapter is not written to induce guilt. It is simply written as a standard to extol the virtues of a godly wife and a godly mother. Also, it was written for the sake of the family. You see, in ancient times, men didn't say, I like her, I want to marry her. Usually it was prearranged. The family would select for the son, the wife of the future. So he would marry her and not even really know her till after they were married. Now it's interesting, today we date people, yet the result is often the same. We don't know each other till after we're really married. But this whole question of who can find a virtuous wife was for the sake of the family, who wanted these kind of values in place for the marriage of their son. Who can find a virtuous wife? How do you measure the worth of a woman? What traits, what qualities are there that would designate this woman as valuable? Worthy, virtuous. Some people who are looking for a wife wouldn't put this on the list, a virtuous woman. Because, as I mentioned, many men in this society are looking for the virtual woman. They have this ideal woman in their mind that either doesn't exist, or if she did, she wouldn't want him anyway. I mean, men might, may not vocalize it, but it's almost like, look, I'm not looking for much. I just want her to be a professional model. An Olympic athlete would help. Uh, an IQ like Albert Einstein. And, of course, she should win every fashion award in the Western Hemisphere. Other than that, I would be content. If there was a gal like that, would she be interested in you? That is a virtual, not a virtuous necessarily, woman. So we have to be careful. If you ask most guys their priority list for their future wife, in this society at least, and I'll be safe, let's take it out into the world for a second, they would say, I want somebody who looks awesome. She has to look. Appearance is number one. Appearance is like the crowning virtue in our culture. Just go into a store and look at the magazines. Look at the type of people that are portrayed on Vogue or on Cosmopolitan magazines. Or listen to some of the late night shows that are out on television. One that I saw not too long ago said, America's obsession with looks and beauty, what people cannot live without. That's exactly what it's become, an obsession with looks and beauty. We want to look young and stay young forever. Ain't going to happen. It's an obsession. And I think stores don't help. When I go into a store and I see this article of clothing on a mannequin, I mean, anybody would look at that mannequin and say, Wow, I want to look like that. Well, the message is, buy this dress and you will. No, you won't. Psychologists and sociologists tell us that the average store mannequin is the size of an emaciated woman. That's why many women turn to emaciation and all sorts of eating disorders to look like that mannequin. We do them a disservice. Now, there's nothing wrong with physical beauty. I think you should do the best with what you got, all of us. But there's a limit. Listen to what Peter said in the New Testament. Do not let your adornment be merely outward. This is 1 Peter chapter 3. The arranging of the hair, the wearing of gold, or putting on fine apparel. 
Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. God is never opposed to beauty. God took, when he created the world, he took chaos and made it into beautiful order, and there's beauty all around us. So we know that God loves beauty. However, there is in the scripture always an emphasis on the inward beauty versus the outward beauty. There's nothing wrong with outward beauty, but the emphasis is always on the inside. You know why that is? Very simple. Verse 30 is the answer. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is what? Passing. It's passing. That outward beauty is passing away. Every pretty face and every perfectly shaped body has an enemy, and that enemy will win. It's called age. You can nip and tuck and do everything, but you'll lose the battle eventually because that kind of beauty is passing. Yet in the United States, we spend $12,785 every minute on beauty products. Or in one year, excuse me, $1,581,300 every hour. Over $1.5 million every hour in a year. It's a $17 billion a year business. But without the inner qualities of a virtuous woman, all of that outward beauty, it's very temporary. It is passing. So a virtuous woman is her designation, and it says she is valuable, for it says her worth is far above rubies. In other words, this kind of a gal is not only rare, but she's priceless when she is found. One translation puts it this way, the value of her life is beyond monetary calculations. Men, have you ever thought to calculate just the amount of hours spent in the various household activities? And if you were to pay someone to do that, what it would cost? There's a guy who did that. The Detroit Free Press had an article done by a local lawyer. His name is Michael Minton on the monetary value of the wife's services in the home. Uh, First, he listed the functions that she performs. Included is this list. Chauffeur, gardener, family counselor, maintenance worker, cleaning woman, housekeeper, cook, errand runner, bookkeeper, budget manager, interior decorator, caterer, dietitian, secretary, and public relations woman or hostess. Minton figured the dollar value of the housewife's work in today's labor market. He came up with the amount of $785.07 a week or $40,823 a year. Forty grand a year! And by the way, that's 1981 prices. So you got to really inflate that baby. She is priceless. She is devoted. I've got to be quick to say that you are valuable, virtuous woman, not only for what you do, but for who you are. Because if you are a virtuous woman, you're devoted to God, and you are devoted to your family, And you ought to be applauded in this society that does not applaud what a virtuous woman stands for or is all about. In fact, the Jewish Mishnah, the rabbinical writings of the Jews on the ancient Old Testament law said, when a good wife dies, for the husband who loved that wife, it is a misfortune to him as great as the rain in Jerusalem. 
inestimable value. She is priceless. There was a lumber company who was placing ads on billboards. And the theme for the billboard was how to turn your house into a home. And they tried different techniques. They would put a patio scene in the back. In other words, add this patio on your house and you'll turn it into a home. Or they had a new kitchen with brand new cabinets. Turn your house into a home. So, in other words, spend money, add to your house, and you'll turn it into a home. That's wrong. They left out the most important element. Put a virtuous woman in a house, she'll make it a home. She is valuable. So that's her designation. Let's now go through some of these verses. We'll save some for next week, but we'll look at her description. First on the list of a virtuous woman's description is in verse 11. She is trustworthy. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. A husband feels safe with a virtuous woman. She is a friend to him that is a safe friend. He entrusts, literally, his heart to her. He gives his heart over to this woman. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says, Wives are to be women worthy of respect, trustworthy in everything. That word trustworthy is a technical term that means trustworthy in the transaction of a business. Just as a business owner would feel at ease when he's away knowing that his manager is trustworthy, so the husband trusts his wife with the affairs of the home. You see, gals, your family has given to you their hearts. It's a trust. Can you be trusted to watch over the home? Can you be trusted to keep confidential those things that are within the family to be held in confidentiality? Can you be trusted to be spiritually faithful and morally faithful to your husband, to your family? Can you be trusted to spend money carefully to plan ahead cautiously? Second is that she is diligent. Read with me in verse 13. We'll read down a few verses. Now, we'll be cautious as we go through these verses. They might seem a little overwhelming. She seeks wool and flax. Remember, this is an ancient context. I don't think anybody here has been looking for flax this week. And willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profit, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good, and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. She reaches her hand to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlets. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates while he sits among the elders of the land, She makes linen garments and supplies sashes for the merchants. Now, when you read that, you think, I'm exhausted just looking at that list. How could I ever accomplish all those things? Well, you can't, at least in one day. This is not the description of her activities in a 24-hour period. This seems to be a synopsis of her life. When she's young, she tends the children. She makes clothes for them and makes sure that everybody has a good, balanced meal. And then, as her life turns a corner, 
or turns a page, there's other activities. In verse 16, she seems to take some savings that she has and invest it in the real estate market. Notice, she considers a field and she buys it. That doesn't mean you have to do that today. Later on in life, it seems that she starts her own business of merchandise. In verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. So this is simply the description of somebody who's diligent in life. One man translated this in a more modern context. Some of these verses would read, She keeps his clothing up to date, clean and tidy. She willingly works around the house and provides variety at mealtimes by a wise selection and delicious foods. She knows a bargain when she sees one. She is always concerned about the future stability and the supply of her home. The strength of her character is shown in her attitude toward her household tasks. She takes pride in a job well done, even if she must work late hours to accomplish it. Third on the list of her description is in verse 26. She is kind-hearted. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. There's something about a woman in the home that causes the children to seek compassion from her. I would always seek a kind tone from my mom. Not that she didn't have her moments with me, believe me. Sometimes I drove her to the brink of insanity, I think, but often when my father would share tough words, necessary words, but the kind of words dads do, I would quickly find my mother to be comforted with kind words from her tongue. And she always had them for me. I I think of Ruth when I think of kind words. Because she came from Moab. She was in a position to care for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And not only was she diligent to go out and do that, but she asked kindly. She asked permission. She said to Naomi, May I please go out and work in the fields today? And that has always struck me. Can I please go out and sweat for you today and toil and labor till the going down of the sun? Would you allow me to do that for you? Yeah, go ahead. And then she goes to the field of Boaz. May I please glean in your fields? Yeah, sure, go for it. Uh, What would you do if your kids came to you and said, can I please clean up my room today? (laughs) Honey, quick, quick, call somebody. Something's wrong with our child. (laughs) The law of kindness is on her tongue. People love to be around kind-hearted people. Nobody loves to be around people who yell and scream and yeah. It's not like, yeah, I like that personality. That's wonderful. We love those who are kind-hearted. There's an attraction to those type of people. And I've got to again think of Solomon. Solomon spoke from experience. And you get hints of this experience in his writings. For instance, in Proverbs 21, verse 9, Solomon wrote, It is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a large house with a contentious woman. I think he lived through that, don't you? 700 women, 300 others. Whoo! That guy deserves an award. Sometimes life is tough and reality sets in And it causes us to be a little bit cynical and tough in our speech. And we have to be careful. The woman at the well of Samaria was a woman like this. She had five husbands. She was living, sleeping with a guy who wasn't her husband. She seemed to be loose around town, and her speech shows it. She's cynical. She doesn't trust. And she has these little cutesy answers every time Jesus spoke to her in the Gospel of John chapter 4. 
In Titus chapter 2, Paul the Apostle told Timothy to teach women to be reverent in the way they live and not to be slanderers, to use their tongues correctly. Women, is the law of kindness in your tongue, in your house, in your church, with your family, with your friends? Do you remember the sitcom All in the Family, Archie Bunker? He always had something cynical to say. And Edith always had something sweet to say and nice to say. There's a scene from that where Archie Bunker is complaining, as he often did. And he said, that's you, all right, Edith the Good. You'll stoop to anything to be good, Edith. You never make anybody mad. You think it's easy living with a saint? Even when you cheat, you don't cheat to win. You cheat to lose. Edith, you ain't human. And of course, Edith says, But Archie! And she actually says, That's a terrible thing to say, Archie Bunker. I'm just as human as you are. And he retorts, Oh yeah? Then prove you're just as human as me. Do something rotten. He was living with this gal whom he said is a saint because the law of kindness was always on her tongue. Fourthly, she is a well-attired woman. And I want to be careful to explain that. Verse 22, She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. She's the gal who wants to dress with dignity and taste. That doesn't mean expensively. You know, Ross for Less or TJ Maxx might have the same item at a reduced rate. But the idea is that she wants to cultivate beauty in word as well as outward. Now let's balance that tapestry in fine linen and purple with verse 25. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She's a woman who dresses on the inside as well as on the outside. I heard of a young mother who went to the store to go shopping, and she was browsing through the ladies' section. Her young son, who was just learning to read, starts wandering around the store and goes to the maternity section. Quickly comes back to find his mother and says, Mommy, look, they're making clothes for eternity now. Actually, that's pretty good. I like that. A woman who is a virtuous woman wants to dress for eternity, as it says here, for time to come, the outward as well as the inward. All right, we've seen her designation. She's virtuous, and she has great value because of that. We've seen her description in some of these verses. Now let's consider, lastly, her devotion. A virtuous woman is devoted to a priority list. There's a system of values. There's something that she holds dear to. First of all, she's devoted to her husband, verse 12. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Solomon said, whoever finds a wife finds a good thing. I never liked that translation because nobody likes to be called a thing. A better translation is whoever finds a wife finds something good because she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Back in the book of Genesis, God promised Adam a wife. It says he looked at Adam and said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper that is comparable to him. Now, gals, admittedly, when you hear that term, helper, you don't get all that excited. It doesn't sound all that romantic. Adam, I love you. I'm going to make you a helper. A what? That's all I am? A helper? 
You know, it's as if Adam and Eve had their wedding ceremony and God said, Adam, will you take Eve to be your lawfully wedded dishwasher and house cleaner and helper? But the idea of the word helper in the original language means a close-knit companion. One who brings the other to fulfillment. One who brings that other person to blossom. Or, more literally, one who rescues that person. A helper. In other words, buddy, you need help. And you need help quick. And I'm going to bring a woman to you who will rescue you from your state of aloneness. That will make you into something you could not be alone. Someone to bring you to complete fulfillment. A woman. And so God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And God fashioned the woman and brought the woman to the man. A helper. Now in Titus chapter 2, and I'm referring to Timothy and Titus because there's a lot to this. It's, uh, Paul says, train the younger women to love their husbands. Timothy, he says, find the older women in your fellowship and tell the older women to train the younger women to love their husbands. That's first on the list. Usually when a couple gets married the first few months, perhaps the first year, that adjustment period, there's no problem. And they're madly in love. There's this emotional zing happening. But after a while, you don't maintain that high level of emotional zing. The reality of commitment and love through commitment settles in. That little honeymoon period is over. And you remember your vow, till death do us part. Not that it's, it shouldn't be an endurance mode your whole life, but there is a level of commitment, of love. Now Jesus said, by this shall all men know you're my disciples, by the love that you have. Well, if there's one place love ought to be shown, it's in the house, in the home, between a husband and a wife. Because if you don't love each other at home, how are you going to effectively tell people about the love of God? God loves you and we're supposed to love one another, but I don't at home, but you're supposed to. It won't work. Howard Hendricks said, if your Christianity doesn't work at home, it doesn't work, so don't export it. A teenager telling her counselor at school about her home life said, I wish my parents had known that unless marriage partners truly love one another, there is little they can teach their own children about the love of God or Christian living. So she's devoted to her husband. Next, she's devoted to her home, her kids, the makeup of the house, the household. Verse 15, notice. She rises while it is night. She provides food for her household. Look down at verse 21. She's not afraid of the snow for her household, for all of her household is clothed with scarlet. And then verse 27, she watches over the ways of her household. So she has a priority. She loves her husband. She loves her household, the kids, the home, the makeup of it. Again, in the book of Titus, in chapter 2, Paul says that they should admonish the young women, again, tell the older women to instruct the younger women, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, and homemakers. And literally, it means to be busy at home. Now, I realize, them's fighting words today. Busy at home? And, you know, just some women, their hair stands on the back of their neck and they get their feathers ruffled because of this. 
And there's people who would say, you see, Paul was a male chauvinist. The Bible's filled with these hate statements against women. And it's this ancient Jewish culture that has no relevance at all on the 20th century. Well, it's true. You've come a long way, baby. But if you start saying that, you've gone too far, baby. Because it is not irrelevant. It is not outdated. Even though one woman, Kate Millett, wrote a book called Sexual Politics, and she said, the family unit must go because it's the family that has oppressed and enslaved women. Well, that's not the intention of this verse, homemakers, or devoted to her household. The idea isn't that the house is a prison. Lock the doors. Secure the bars. Keep her stayed at home. No, the idea is that she lives with the high priority of this thing is important, my household. And I am devoted to its nurturing, the guidance, the managing of the affairs of the home. You know why? Because the home is a ministry. The home is a ministry. More than anything else, the home is a ministry. There was once a woman who was saved at a crusade by Gypsy Smith, who incidentally was an evangelist years ago. She wrote Mr. Smith a letter. Dear Gypsy Smith, I got saved at one of your crusades, and I feel like God is impressing on my heart to preach the gospel. He very tenderly wrote her back with this reply. Dear Madam, I am excited that you not only know God, but that you feel the call to preach. But I am more delighted to inform you that God has already provided you with a congregation of 12. You see, she had 12 children at home. And she wanted to go out and preach the gospel. Listen, God has already given you a congregation of 12. Stay at home. Raise those kids for right now. Let them grow up and launch them out and see that as a ministry. Again, this doesn't mean that a woman can't be outside the home or for that matter, I think, even have a career outside the home. Because as I read Proverbs 31, this woman was not only busy at home, but she's out buying real estate. She's out selling things and merchandise in verse 24. But she has a priority to the home. By the way, this verse does not mean as well that, well, that's woman's work, as some men would love to interpret this. I have my work and you have your work. That's woman's work. I don't do that kind of a work. I'm not called to do that. Well, it's interesting. The Bible says that husbands are to love their wives as what? Christ loved the church. That's a tall order. Now, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Come on, we can wash the dishes once in a while. Or do something that would alleviate what they're doing. But they are to have as their priority, and I think that's the point in Proverbs 31, that when a wife chooses to be a wife, a woman chooses to be a wife and a mother, she is choosing a God-designed role. Shouldn't be ashamed of it. It's a God-designed role where the home comes first. That's top billing. Now, if you say, well, how do I know if I'm taking on too much outside the home? Well, just use your family as the barometer. Are they suffering because of your absence? Are they enhanced? Do they get time with you? It goes for women as well as men. Finally, and we'll close with this. She's devoted to help the helpless, verse 20. She extends her hand to the poor. She reaches out her hands to the needy. She is open-handed because she is open-hearted. 
Her love and her devotion does not stop at the front door where she says, just me, just my husband, just my family. She looks for opportunities for those people who are needy and helpless. There's a great example of this. In the book of Acts, there's a woman called Tabitha. Another translation, she's called Dorcas. Seriously, I didn't make that up. I prefer the first translation for obvious reasons. The description of her in the New Testament is that she was always doing good and helping the poor. Now, when she died, she left a legacy. Peter comes to Joppa as soon as she died and finds that there's women around her house, around the door of her house, holding garments, articles of clothing that Tabitha had made and given to them because she was always doing good and helping the poor. One of the things that attracted me to my wife is that she had a concern for those on the mission field and for the underprivileged, the poor. And as she would describe her heart and her love, I thought, I could hang out with this woman. And I decided to do that. So, virtual woman or virtuous woman? You can be in love with that ideal that all of the movies in vogue say a woman ought to be. Or men, you can look for a virtuous woman. Women, you can decide to be virtual woman or a virtuous woman. Beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, it says here, will be praised. I want to conclude with the writings of another woman. Her name is Janice Harris. She wrote an article in Today's Christian Women in uh, February of 1991. She said something that I think speaks to the heart of everyone, man or woman, because of the pressure in this society to be something that God hasn't intended. Janice Harris writes, It's one thing to conclude that it's important to live your life without undue concern for what other people think. It's another thing to do it. Peer pressure is thought of as a teenage problem. But many women, even Christian women, struggle with it long after adolescence. Almost every woman is self-conscious about her appearance, her clothes, her weight, her makeup. Some worry about what others think about their housekeeping or decorating skills while others feel pressured about going to work or about not going to work. One of the main problems with peer pressure is that it can cause a woman to act on someone else's values rather than her own. But the bigger issue is that it's a matter of pride, which always threatens a person's spiritual health. Learning to resist peer pressure has many advantages, one of which is a tremendous feeling of freedom, keeping in mind that God is the only one whose approval will ultimately matter. Isn't that freeing to think about? Whose opinion is really important? God's really is. Because beauty is passing. And one day we will all stand before God. And the issue is, did you fear the Lord? Then his opinion will matter supremely. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, this example the words of Lemuel's mom and speaking about what a woman ought to be who is called a virtuous woman and what men ought to look for in a woman, what they ought to esteem as important in a lifelong partner, a companion, a rescuer. Lord, it is our prayer this morning that we would live in the sight of reality instead of virtual reality when it comes to values. 
I pray that there would not be this separation between the reality and imagination. Help us, Lord, to be firmly rooted in truth, knowing that your opinion matters. May we bless and encourage and love the wives, the women that you have given us, the widows in our fellowship, the young single women, those who are married, to esteem them as valuable because they hold a godly value system for who they are. In Jesus' name, amen.